understand uh, Bevington is the founder yeah. of Coach House Press, and we're sitting here in front of your premises on a lovely sunny July afternoon. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Just to start with, I've read that the Coach House Press, in a way, took the reins from Contact Press. Now, maybe it's just a coincidence in timing that they sort of wound down when you started up, or, or maybe I'm wrong. It was a little bit of a coincidence of timing. I had started printing the first book that was sold in uh, the village bookstore and put out for the public, Man in a Window. And uh, as a result of that, Earl Burney and Al Purdy invited me to a literary soiree. That was in 65. Yeah, and uh, attending that was Victor Coleman. He was at the time working for Bill Toy at Oxford. And he had a sound of poetry, the Black Mountain sound, that I thought was more interesting than some of the older poets. <laughs> Charles Wilson? So, yeah, so yeah. I invited Victor to uh, come and visit at Coach House. Dennis Reed was helping me at the time. We traded stories and looked, we looked at some of the books that Victor had collected from City Lights, San Francisco, from Black Sparrow, from Grabhorn. And uh, those became somewhat of a model. I took it upon myself to want to do books in a private press tradition by living Canadian authors. Private press is usually dealt with dead authors. So you wanted to give the same quality treatment to the living as well as the dead. That's it. And I had picked up and got very influenced by a book by Leonard Cohen that was designed by Frank Newfield in a special edition. And they used uh, extra ink, nice paper, and die cut. It was a model. That's part of the series of four, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 You know these books. I do, yeah. yeah. Ralph Gustafson was River one. Among Rocks? Yes. <laughs> Phyllis Gottlieb. That's it. Yeah. Frank really did a great job on that. Um, but he comes from an illustrator kind of tradition. Although he was pretty good at, at type, he, he wasn't deeply a typographer. The challenge in those days was we were typesetting with lead. Everything was done hot lead. Uh, the book printing companies didn't always do their own typesetting. There was independent typesetters. Hunter Rose was one of the few that did their own typesetting. And they had a particularly enlightened guy there who bought the mats or the molds for type from British Linotype. So they had the pilgrim and a couple of faces that were done in that special edition. Monotype uh, had begun a series of really high-quality designs in the 20s and 30s. Stanley Morrison set them up for that. So um, getting type by either linotype or hand typesetting were our choices. The first book that Coach House did, Man in a Window, I typeset by hand, letter by letter. So I typeset a page, proof it, print it, and put the type back, go on to the, I think I did double spreads. So that was relatively slow, but the, the finished results were really, really good. And uh, they were, it was printed letterpress uh, on it was generically called a Gordon, so we had Challenge Gordon, it's a clamshell press that you could only print a couple of pages at a time. It was a challenge to set the rollers, so just the right amount of ink got on the surface of the letters and didn't squash out when it hit the paper, set the impression so the letters didn't push into the paper too much. And, and interfere with the, uh, the text on the other side of the paper. 
exactly. Four men in a window we used fine art etching. And uh, in those days there was paper supplied for letterpress printing and for offset printing. The uh, offset paper was uh, glued together better. The letterpress didn't need to have um, the surface fluff glued down quite so much. So uh, there was quite a few choices in colors and grades and thicknesses at that time. Unlike today where they've cut down on the color papers, cut down severely. It's got to do with people not, not liking to see the dyes go down the river. The green people don't like to look at it. It's called pollution, but it's dye. <laughs> so basically what it is, it's concern for the environment has affected the artistic expression of typesetters and printers. Yes. All the way through the business, we've, we've been... Uh, and why some of the earlier books are worth collecting? The inks we had were petroleum oil-based. Right. Now we're required to use vegetable oil. And not as effective or not as beautiful so, or uh, the veggie oil can be removed from the paper and the paper can be recycled so in it's it, ephemeral yeah about the paper itself I got in touch with the purchasing agent at University of Toronto Press in around 1973-74 and uh, asked if we could get in on a mill run of paper with them so they're getting a large amount of paper done and I asked if we could tag on so we tagged on and then I went with a bunch of students to tour the mill that was in the Don Valley and uh, saw the paper making process and it was absolutely clear that at the mill they could put the switter wheels and the chopper wheels, they could reset them and make the paper fit our press exactly. So I would get pre-cut paper, which was coming from an environment where we had a hand cutter that required a lot of effort to cut the paper. They cut down on labor costs. That means you could yeah. provide us with cheaper books or, or more profit. Yeah, it was, it was pretty obvious, too, that they could open the um, sprays and make the paper a little thicker. And then at the last minute, they could put a roller on that gave it the lead finish. So I asked uh, Roland, the mill in Quebec, the mill rep, if they could do that for us. And they said, yes, we can make Zephyr lead to your specifications. You have to buy quite a few tons. But as long as we know you're going to buy that many tons per year, we'll make it during off-season. So you got custom paper, unique custom... Not only that, but the paper is made out of fresh little trees that have just come off their farm. They get ground, physically ground up. The pulp is ground rather than broken down with chemicals, which means that little long fibers have still have a little bit of tree glue in them when they get put together again. So there's um, no acid, and the paper lasts in libraries forever. Acid-free? Virtually. If we get back to the first book, that obviously didn't have this custom paper. No, but it had a very high-quality paper at the time. It was called Fine Art Etching, and it was made for archival printing. And why did you go with that one? Well, I wanted, I wanted good paper. You wanted your first book to make a statement? I didn't think of it as an important statement at the time. But in retrospect, a couple of things fell in place to make it have all kinds of good characteristics. The characteristics of a collectible book, hand typeset, in an era when it was near the end of that procedure. Uh, the illustrations were silkscreen printed. Dennis Reed operated a camera and I did the darkroom technology. And we made um, photo silkscreen images and printed each one in a different color. So that's outrageous to have custom made ink 
And we made the ink by squirting tubes of oil paint in a clear base and printed. So that's really good ink. The final thing was at the end, because I'd come from a country newspaper print shop where there was a little bit of commercial work. I had a numbering machine that I was very proud of. So I got a photo engraving of the, um, of the uh, logo for the, of the print shop, which is a side view of the press that it was printed on. I got a photo engraving made of that, about an inch circular. And uh, that was printed letterpress. And uh, the numbering machine was put on, so the books were numbered. And it, it, it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek for collectors because the tradition was that limited editions have a handwritten number. Yes. And yes. Uh, the serious people that are in the business keep a diary of who owns what number for yeah. provenance. Yeah. Anyways, we stumbled into that, so the book has all those characteristics, and it was, it was sent away and sewn at the, at the good place, and then it was glued into paper covers, and the paper covers were silk screen printed and varnished. So there's all kinds of print technology built into that object. And there were 300 of them published, is that yes. right? Yes. When we moved on to the next book, I think it was called the LSD Leacock, in 66 I bought the I bought a linotype machine, and uh, the linotype machine came from the Windsor Star. It cost $1,200 or something, and then I had to wait a few months to get um, a good set of mats for the machine, the molds for the type, and I picked um, Garman number three amongst the linotype library. That seemed the most best serif face. I, I definitely didn't want Tange Neuroni. So that was because what, all the newspapers were using? Well, they were using... Corona, a version of time. U of T Press on their linotype machines had Caledonia and Fairfield, which are they're nice faces by Dwiggins. I wasn't at the time a big fan of Dwiggins. I wanted something that was a little more, what did they say, crystal goblet. Didn't draw attention to itself, but it was yeah. a pure face. Invisible, but obviously leaving some impression. Yeah. So I, I also put in an order for Helvetica. So here we have the 1917 machine with the latest, newest typeface, Helvetica. <laughs> and, uh, um, nobody else in the city had that. Um, I found out about it through designers and uh, realized that it was way more interesting than standard or um, news gothic. Futura was the other sans serif face. So there's Helvetica. And so you did... I you did the LSD Leacock in Helvetica. In Helvetica, okay. Which was way ahead of its time. And now with the little movie on Helvetica, people yes. instantly yes. recognize yes. it. It's not, not a good sans serif face for legibility anymore. Uh, our typographers have moved along and made way better typefaces. But it was a trend at the time. And they used it in all sorts of signs as well, didn't they? And in oh. advertising, too. Yeah. Well, incidentally, what book are you referring to here? Uh, this is a book, uh, 2020, that we co-chess published on our occasion of an anniversary, I think, the first 20 years. And um, it's got a little write-up on each of the books, and it reminds me. So this is... This itself is collectible. I was going to say, this is this is gold <laughs> yeah. for the collector. This is where the collector should start. Yes, yes. Uh, I believe this is online on our website. Well, the content is, okay. Yes. So the information is online, yes. but okay. the physical object. The physical object is printed on our Zephyr paper. Wonderful. That's a nice plus. Typeset in uh, uh, Trump Medieval, that's a uh, photo typeset. Okay, so let's go back to the letterpress. The Wings for Icarus was um, 
I think that was Helvetica too. Norman Yates illustrations, I'd made crude color separations in the camera. I bought a copy camera that made film negatives 14 by 18 inches. And I was obsessed with good film work. So I put color filters in front of the artwork and made pseudo separations and then put colored ink in the press. They weren't standard four colors. Hard to imagine back then that we didn't have such a thing as standard four color. The invention of the pure dye for blue cyan hadn't happened. And to explain right. that, we, you, with the four colors, you, you just lay them all down and then you get a full color yeah. impression. Yeah. Whereas red, yellow, blue, the primary colors. Yeah. Plus printers always have to have black. Black, yeah. So, so in the early days, we had a very bad blue. Okay. And we had, uh, we had choices in the reds. Uh, you had a warm red or a cool red. So the, the standard hadn't set in. And when uh, did the standard set in, incidentally? In the late 70s, okay. I think. Deserve some research. We've got 2020, so that's our starting point if we're a, a collector who wants to get the early yes. part of your, your press. The first one is would be a wonderful book to have, yes. just based on what you've said. Is there a... Shortlist. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, if you, you as a collector were to eyeball what you've produced, say, in the first 20 years, what would you go after and why? I would go after that triangular book that had a felt cover, Baseball, by George Bowery. The first edition, we silkscreened white lettering on the uh, fuzzy paper, and we bought the fuzzy paper. It was a standard item at the time. The uh, current one that's available is still worth having. Well, you mean the reprint? We, the reprint, yeah. Yeah, because the inside is... Uh, exactly from the same film. first one had a... Uh, this cover was slightly different, and it's printed with green and black. And that's 1967. Yes. The Chambers interview with the silver cover is interesting right now because there's going to be a major show of Chambers' work mounted at the Art Gallery of Ontario. So the career of Jack Chambers makes that first interview an interesting book. Right. It's a physical object that's not great. And then, of course, there's Dainty Monsters, Mike Rondacci's first book. The first edition came out uh, as a limited hardcover. It was printed photo offset, but the titles were printed in brown ink. So that's a distinguishing characteristic. And it was numbered with the numbering machine. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> How many of those books did you number with the numbering machine? Any idea? Uh, no. That was supposed to be a standard thing. Oh, I see. It okay. fell off. Yeah, okay. It fell off. Dainty Monsters was typeset on the Linotype machine with the Garamond 3. And uh, the cover was a batik that Michael had. I remember spending a whole week in the dark room with filters, trying to separate out the colors and increase the contrast. And then it was printed with purple ink and yellow ink. It wasn't full color at all. The cover was really fine. You know, the interesting thing, of course, is that because of his name and fame, that book is probably the most expensive in your list, I would think, or close to it. Well, I'm going to come to one more that's more exotic. In 1969, The Man with Seven Toes was typeset and printed from the type. It was hand-printed from the type with large initial letters. And it was uh, hardcover bound, and the illustration by Jack Chambers was tipped on the cover. We did a very small number. It was later on released 
as a photo offset. We photographed the pages and did an edition. But then Michael decided it wasn't a book that he wanted to have in print. So that's the rarest and okay. most expensive. When you to find an original hardcover of Man of Seven Toes, that's up in the thousands. Whereas many of these books that we're talking about or will be talking about can be had for anything from let's say twenty five to seventy five yes. dollars. Which we're is kind of at a happy time because many of the people who bought them at the time for whatever reason are now tired of them. So they do become available. The kids of the old guys don't care about these things. Yeah. So they come out. The timing is everything. For books done in the 60s and 70s, yeah, this is a good opportunity. Journey and the Returns was a, a, a remarkable box collection of things. A Did little book that with poem that was printed in tones of gray and uh, the little flip things and the die cut pieces and all the concrete poetry ephemeras. I don't know, it was 10 or 15 different units. It had one piece that was instructions to fold it in the shape of a little cone mountain of paper right. and light it on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you're not going to find very few. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there's an, I think there was a numbering in there. Nevertheless, these eyes by Roy Kiyuka is a book that was started by Robert Reed, I think, in Montreal and never got finished. So we got from McGill. Yeah, we got repros. Roy Kiyuka gave us repros. I remember him coming around, and we sat and smoked a lot of hashish, a lot of smoke. Pass the pipe and talk about the book. We did a promotion piece for that book, and we found a collection of maybe a hundred oval mirrors about face size, and silk screened on them because I was a good silk screen printer. We got the kind of ink that would stick on glass and dry. So those were given out as promotion pieces. Wow. And the book itself was, the cover was printed on blue foil. It was a box wrap material. You don't get that anymore, but uh, I printed black ink on this blue foil. And because it was made as a box wrap, it was, underneath the foil was newsprint. Nobody cared. So it's incredibly fragile. Hmm. So uh, you'll never find one in good condition. <laughs> that's, that's characteristic. That's, I was going to say that's uh, again, that's ephemeral. good to know, though, isn't <laughs> yes. it? Because you don't want to hold out for a fine edition because you don't. You won't never find get one. one. It's funny when you mention newsprint because uh, it, that reminds me of back in the 18th century, where the stuff that they used to put in the spine, they often, they, they yeah. just try and put, and often it was a sort of a newsprint, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. One I loved by Victor Coleman was fun. That was one of the early books that we didn't sew. We sent it away to a bindery, and they mounted it on the wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> so it came back, and we chopped them off, we sent it away again, so it's narrower. <laughs> it's narrower than it was in initially intended yes. to be. Okay. And, it, and it you'll has, see that when you see the book? It had illustrations by Bob Snyder. He's uh, become a notorious folk singer in the um, Halifax area in Nova Scotia. He makes trips to Toronto once in a while and puts on a concert. Early days for him being an artist. History of America was, I think, the first book of um, fiction, full-length lines and full stories, enormously funny. Uh, the cover was printed split fountain. You know, you put blue in one side of the fountain and 
red in the other and they blend seamlessly. So it looked like a real cover. The color cover was just split from black, but it looked really nice. David McFadden's Letters from the Earth had a whole collection of his family photos. Again, our capability of being able to do darkroom filmmaking in-house allowed us to do lots of that. Lots of photographs? Yeah. Again, I suppose that might be something. If, you were, if you're at all interested in photographs, you could go after all of the books that contain photographs that you produce. It's a small set, and they're actually really, really a fun set. There's the um, Heim book, uh, Explorations, that he took in surveying Western Canada in 1858. It was the equivalent of taking a camera to the moon. He had to carry glass plates, and he took 50 plates, and they're all reproduced. So we were lucky enough to connect with one of the um, archivists in Ottawa, and uh, they gave me the good prints. Shh. <laughs> I photographed them directly. And, uh, Did you go up there? No, he brought them here. Okay. Watched over them. Sat in the coffee room beside the dark room, and I photographed them one after another. But um, we used a technique, uh, duochrome printing. We made one exposure for the light printing plate, which was, in, in the case of that book, a, a, a tan, a light brown. And it had all the detail and information in the highlights. And then we made a plate for the black, and it had didn't have to worry about the highlights in the black. So it had all the information for the darkening. So when the two came together, there were that wonderful sepia look, mysteriously full in photographic picture detail. So, so very expressive of the, of the time that it was... Yes. Our press did duotone printing, and we developed a real good reputation for duotone printing. There was a series, Heim, and then we did one on Balsley, who worked for the Notman Studio, but he toured into uh, BC. And those are just gorgeous, rich photographic things. Plus those books have an explanation of the photography of the time, like wet plate photography, and they have amazing maps done on onion skin, printed in pale blue with fine lines, engraving lines. So they're special books in their own way. Then, how, uh, Were they oversized? The size was about nine by 12 horizontal. And uh, they're hardcover, they're sewn, nice end papers. We can, we can find those? They're, they're around, they're yeah. Around. Okay. And they're not prohibitively expensive? No, people sort of haven't paid attention to those guys. I mean, the Notman books, yeah, because he had a degree of fame yes. as an early yeah. photographer. The other one that I'm really proud of is uh, History of Canadian Photography, because it's a whole survey of early daguerreotypes. And is this part of that series? How many in the series, then, well, let's see. There's one more. Engineer's Witness. Uh, not totally Canadian contents. It's uh, a page, a fine duotone reproduction of an important engineering accomplishment. And one page describing the horseshoe making machine or the first yeah. refrigerator or the first pneumatic drill, like that. So, right. what do we got up to now? Four or five? I think that's all in that format. We had projected one on Henderson and did the film work, but never got the money together to do it. See, in, the, in that day, it cost about $20,000 to get film and plates and get a small edition done. And that was a big chunk of money yeah. compared to two or 3000 for a poetry book and four yeah. or five for a novel. Obviously a greater risk and you'd yeah. more difficult to get your money back and yeah. all of that. We're on to photographs. I wonder, what about 
topics. We're jumping way ahead here, but sure. I, I was just talking with one of your colleagues about this successful Toronto yes. series that you're doing right now. I wonder if there's anything like that in the in the early history of. Uh, of I would gobble up the uh, Utopia books right now. Get a whole yeah, well, right there's, now. A ma- there's a map in the back, right? Of, of uh, that we're stuck printing that map. It costs too much. So uh, there's a there's an online map. So grab them if you can, can get the map. Yes. <laughs> And how many of those are there? Or is it ongoing? Um, in that series, and I recite Utopia, Greentopia, HTO, State of the Arts, there's five or six. Droll is more or less in that series, a Toronto centric book. It's, it's not exactly the same size, it was made a little narrower so you could put it in your pocket. So, anything like that uh, back, in the, back in the day? You could go through this. The list in uh, 2020 and look at illustrators because that was a, a theme that is consistent at Coach House. There's the Robert Phones books. There's three or four of them. And uh, the, the first one, Collages, was in a box. And uh, that's not very common. And Forest City. And um, I'm trying to think of some other ones. He printed it. Okay. But the Collages is definitely an artist book. And by that you mean that he was involved in the production of it? Yes. Did he do the did he do the art in it as well? Yes. Now the other one that's really fun is Christopher Dudney has come on to have a great career. And this is his first book. And when his dad brought him over from his dad was working at the ROM, he said, This is my son, I want you to teach him a book printing. So I showed him how to typeset and he typeset that book from lead, single letters, himself. As an apprentice, that's it. So yeah. that's a, that would be a fun book to have. And then, you know, there's the uh, the great Canadian sonnet books where Greg Curnow illustrated. They're big little books. They're fat and uh, squarish, you know? There's how many of those altogether? Well, what happened is we brought out volume one, then yeah. we brought out volume two, then we put them together, and um, that sold pretty well for a while. And then we digitized the whole thing, put it online, and reprinted it. So there's currently, in print, a beautiful facsimile. So if you were if you were to get all four, for, that yeah. would be a nice little collection, because the illustrations are spectacular. Now the other one is our early work with graphic novels. So here we have, in 71, the projector for Martin Vaughn James. And he's revered amongst the current graphic novelists. This would in the history of graphic novels, this would have been very early. I remember seeing Elephant that he published with New Press, and then when he presented this, I said, I want to print that. It doesn't fall in the grant category. We can't get funding it for it being poetry or novel, because it's all pictures. So, And they'd never heard of this beast before. No, and no, the genre of graphic yeah. novel yeah. didn't exist. Mm. It was They were just obsessive good drawings. So um, I made negatives of all the drawings and printed it personally to make sure that it got done and that we could, that we could afford it. So we didn't have to pay a pressman even. It got done. There's one other that that we did of Martin's. Um, the cage. Just, the park, yeah. the cage, and um, the projector. Yeah. And and so he's revered now as a what a, a pioneer. Yeah, there's many people that collect graphic novels because they're just slightly off the grid. 
No, they're very, very popular. Uh, you know, they're sort of sucking in all of those comet collectors, too, yeah. aren't they? And uh, I'm proud of having started the Martyrology. It's now nine volumes. So that's a set that we, we did um, first printing, and then it got redesigned a little bit and got made more into a set. But the first printings of the Martyrology, we printed the laid paper. We printed as if it was laid paper. That was before we actually got the laid paper being made. So, what do you hold mean? Hold it up to the light, and it's got that ye old laid texture. We made a pale, a plate, a printed pale. You printed the. Uh, you made yeah. it, printed it to make it Wallpaper. look like it was laid. Wallpaper. <laughs> then put the black words on. So there's a few books That's in this cool. period where we decided, okay, we have an offset press, and um, it's relatively cheap to print wallpaper. So we did a series of wallpaper books. So you can collect the all the books. That, yeah. <laughs> now, how would we find out? Uh, is it, does it tell us? It doesn't say anywhere. It doesn't say, so you'd be the only person on earth that Anyone would know could that. pick up a book from the early 70s. And, and look just at look it. at it. Okay. But as I say, so there's no Vancouver list. Poems have is wallpaper. Arcana has wallpaper. Okay. Um, Was it one where a period where you did this? Yeah. So w that, what would that period be? 73? 72 to late 70s. Iron Horse in 73 is imminently collectible because it's Allen Ginsberg. Mm. And it has the wallpaper background. Only it's more special in that it was taken from... The, the pictures were taken from a film loop. A picture of a train coming and going. So through the book, it's a flip book mm -hmm. on the wallpaper background. And then the poem's over. So, so what? If it's a flip book, so you see the train moving? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's called right. Iron Horse. It was a uh, wonderful treat to get a book from Ginsburg because that... Wasn't he involved with your press somehow? Or well, yeah. was that a Nancy that he was on? He, he did a book with a Nancy, but yeah. he also did one with us. The important thing is having a, um, having a Ginsburg book meant that some of the independent stores in the U.S. paid attention. So Ferlinghetti would take our other books in right. City Lights. That helped to build the reputation of the of yeah. coach house out there. I'm speaking with uh, Stan Bevington, who's the founder of Coach House Press, and we're talking about collecting the early uh, output of the press from 65 to 85.